This is Object, a podcast about design and contemporary craft in Australia. I'm your host, Lisa Carl from the Australian Design Centre. Welcome to the final episode of Series 1. I hope you've enjoyed meeting seven of our Living Treasures Masters of Australian Craft. In this bonus episode, you'll meet one of the key people behind the original idea for Living Treasures, Brian Parks. Brian is the CEO of The Jam Factory, Adelaide's leading craft and design centre, where he's been for over a decade. Before that, he was Associate Director of the Australian Design Centre. With so much talent in Australian contemporary craft, how are living treasures chosen? Who selects them? How was the very first Living Treasures exhibition made on a shoestring budget that may have included shopping at IKEA? And you'll hear about the two Living Treasures I didn't get to talk with, the late Klaus Moyer and Nick Mount. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Lisa. It's good to be here. So, Brian, I thought we could start back at the beginning and find out from you where the idea for the Living Treasures series came from. Yeah, and look, it, it, it's a good backstory. Like so many good ideas, it builds on the foundations of so many other good ideas and people's contributions. And um, the National Gallery of Australia put together a touring exhibition of the work of Susan Conn, put together by the late Jim Logan, who was then the curator of decorative arts at the NGA in the mid-90s. And I'd uh, had the good fortune to work at the NGA at that time and got to know Jim and was involved in that project. It was the first time that a major institution had done a big touring exhibition of someone who came out of the crafts sector. And Susan is a contemporary jeweller. That's right. And, and someone whose practice spans across art and design very much through the prism of craft. All the hallmarks of the Living Treasures series were borrowed from that exhibition, which Jim had always intended as an ongoing series of shows celebrating the extraordinary wealth of talent in the decorative arts scene in in Australia. Jim sadly passed away from HIV AIDS while that show was touring. The legacy of what has been a pretty interesting ongoing series, it's it's nice to kind of acknowledge that. And that's not a story that, that we've really ever told or acknowledged properly. So uh, I think it's a nice place to have started. I think that's really interesting because ideas for exhibitions come from everywhere, don't they? And that's a really fantastic starting point for what has now become an amazing series of exhibitions and one that I hope Jim would be really proud of as well. Yeah. And then so there was, you know, a point in time that made it appropriate for ADC to take the lead in that space. And it was a time when the organisation had been perceived by many of its stakeholders as having kind of transgressed in some way and having championed design at the expense of craft, which was never the intention. And Steve Pozell, who was director at the time, and I both loved and love craft, but it, it, it kind of stirred a bit of a hornet's nest. Mm. I, I, I guess the design interest that we had was always intended as an add-on and not a a usurping of craft. I always think it's interesting when um, we have that contest of ideas around 
art, craft and design because people in the Living Choices series rise above that. You know, they work in their practice and they employ craft skill, they employ a design mindset and they certainly employ an artistic mindset as well and, you know, work equally across all of those terrains. Which is why the Susan Conn model was so interesting. Anna Schwartz, who represents Conn, you know, would refer to Susan Conn as an artist. When she's working with Alessi, the media referred to her as a designer. She explicitly refers to herself as a craftsperson. And of course, underpinning all of that is the skill evolved as a jeweller. One of the outcomes from that was, was the putting forward of this idea very necessary idea, I think, that as a national leadership organisation, Object could celebrate the leading figures, the influential figures in craft in Australia and do it in a similar kind of format and template to what we'd seen with the Susan Conn show. So the idea of a major publication and a national touring exhibition with kind of public programs along the way, which is the template, was born. So coming back to the beginnings of the series when you were doing the planning early on, how were the artists selected? It's a good question, actually, because, again, the strategy there was developed in line with this community unrest. So we wanted it to be inclusive and consultative deliberately. We evolved a nominations process that enabled the organisations in the craft sector around the country as well as individual practitioners to nominate. And so there's a very deliberately open process and we appointed uh, a kind of jury that was populated by the key figures kind of curatorially, academically, theoretically. What was the criteria for nominating the artists for for that initial list? There was a 30-year practice requirement there was a need for them not to have been recognised in a similar way, so which, which precluded Susan Conn and it precluded Frank Bauer, but probably not very many others. Because what we were trying to do was add to the body of knowledge, not replicate. Perhaps the biggest umbrella criterion was that the person needed to be a leading practitioner in their field whose influence had been significant. We had lots of exhibitions of 40, 50, 100 people, but we didn't have very many solo exhibitions. Steve Pizzell was the former CEO of the Australian Design Centre. He's now an innovation strategist and facilitator in mindful leadership. And so I said, what if we took that and we don't just do one show, but we take it and we start traveling across the country. And so it's one artist each couple of years that allows us to really engage with audiences to say, here's somebody we think is a real treasure of Australia, a master of their work. And so we did a big catalogue and we did a touring exhibition and we really put, well, I'll be honest about it, I think we put the resources that a museum might have and we didn't have. We really had to hustle for resources to make this happen because no museum was doing a show of this level and this commitment we took the show from the 
craft centers across the country and we moved it not only to them but we moved it to major museums like the Melbourne Museum and you know we got it to the major gallery in Dubbo and to over to the west coast so I think it was the breadth all of a sudden the biggest impact was a breadth of audience and a diversity of audience that hadn't really been able to take in such a big body of work on such a regular basis. The monogram, I, I mean, I think beautiful, but possibly what even became, I think, a more impactful piece was when we started doing interviews and recordings and um, videos of the artists. And that started, of course, through online distribution, allowed us to gain expand audience. I think that this was not just one organization's sort of project. It really was a collaboration with many centers across the country. What I see is that it actually established new ways of working with bigger institutions, smaller ones. As a sector, we developed through such a program. And it was, of course, made up of many people. We had people contributing writing from all across the country. We had the advisors from all across the country. Although the show focused on an individual, it was very much about the community as a whole that would be able to bring one exhibition like this into uh, realization. The project has involved the artists, of course, but many other skilled people have also played their part. And you've mentioned some of those people already who were involved in the initial selection process and in juries over the past 15 years. And and those people include curators, writers, producers, designers. Can you talk about how, as a curator, you navigate the many roles that help bring a project to fruition? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the curatorial role has evolved over the years so much and and. In those early 2000s, there were a lot of conversations amongst curators in our field about this changing role, this increasing need to be more of a project manager than the kind of traditional institutional curatorial role of connoisseurship and scholarship. Particularly in the small to medium organisation sector, the curator position became the key project manager of um, increasingly complex well, very much so. I think that role is seeing it through from the very beginning, the idea, That's right. through to the execution presentation. Which, you know, I'm, personally I found incredibly exhilarating and I think it was a great privilege. So we kind of made stuff up as we went, right, and we needed to find a way to fund this, right, and, and in the end we found, you know, terrific support over the years of the Visions Program, but the Les Blakeborough Show was effectively unfunded but we'd made a very loud song and dance about doing this thing and we had to pull it off one way or another. So as you said, there are a whole lot of people involved. The curatorial position was really about identifying those people, getting them on board, trying to do deals with them to kind of do it as, you know, to make it look like it was being done by the National Gallery on a tenth of the budget. And joining all the dots. And joining all the dots, that's right. Mm. And so much of it was smoke and mirrors compared to the thing that we modelled it off. The nimbleness of a small organisation in doing that stuff has been the key absolute factor to the success of this program. So Les was number one. He was a very conscious and deliberate choice as the first of the living treasures. He'd been on the 
a founding director of the Crafts Board of Australia Council, but was also, and always, and even still now, continued to innovate. That was a really important thing. We didn't want the living treasures thing to be a kind of mausoleum to something past. We wanted it to celebrate the influence of these people, but to acknowledge the ongoing innovation and contribution and the idea that they're living treasures was was really important, this this idea of ongoing contribution. I I went to art school in Hobart and Les taught me to throw pots in 1988. These stars aligned and, and I had this opportunity to work with someone who had been a mentor in a different capacity as a, as a professional colleague, as a curator. Because ultimately, what I saw as the opportunity in the Living Treasures series was to become a kind of translator. The story is the story. How do you package it for an audience to digest in different ways depending on whether they're a deep craft enthusiast or if they're a casual observer? So you need to understand the story to do that. And so the, the, the opportunity to translate was, was much easier in that first instance because there was a pre-existing relationship. I think that's the essence, isn't it? That trusted relationship, whether yeah. that's a new relationship or one that's developed over, well, in this case, you know, many years. Um, I think that's the key to a successful outcome. And it provided a template for how we would approach the subsequent shows. The other thing we learned in that show, we, there was a lot of pragmatism around, okay, how do, we, how do we make a touring exhibition work in a way that's going to be incredibly useful and easy for those touring venues around the country who may have varying levels of experience or, or staff resources uh, or comfort around breakable objects, all, all that sort of stuff. So we, we had to design an exhibition that would easily pack, uh, fit into one truck, and we had bugger all money. Again, the jack-of-all-trades curator in the small to medium sector, so I, I, I designed the exhibition. And it was IKEA trestle legs with MDF box tops that had a particular kind of colour hue that we worked with Les on and a series of quite neat little kind of boxes that would hang on the wall to kind of frame objects but that, that would concertina inside one another to pack into a truck. So it was all about space efficiency but it, it looked pretty flash, right? It was, it was done on a shoestring but looked pretty flash. So this, that exhibition, the first exhibition, the Les Blackbird exhibition, its success must have triggered something with the Visions program because, you know, the series from then till now has primarily been funded by the Australian government through its Visions Australia touring program. To date, I think we've had over $1.5 million in funding for the series and Visions Australia funds tours mostly to regional areas. Why do you think that is an important feature of this particular program? Audiences love these shows. Touring venues in the regions love these shows because their audiences love them. The kinds of touring exhibitions that have gone into regional galleries, there had not been craft-based shows and there certainly hadn't been solo exhibitions of craft-based practitioners at all. So the value that the Living Treasures exhibition brings to a gallery like ours 
is the fact that it actually provides essential access. Bridget Guthrie is the director of Tamworth Regional Gallery in New South Wales. So it's about essential access to quality, really significant artist work. So, for example, Lola Greeno, who's the First Nations artist, to be able to have her work in our gallery and showcase that to other First Nations artists that are living regionally is fantastic. Then we had some of our First Nations community come in and particularly some of the local weavers and they were really inspired by seeing those works. The conversations that that provides, the exchange of ideas and information is essential. Sometimes an exhibition gallery can be that safe place for unsafe discussions. And particularly like some of the works that Lola had done were talking to that difficult past and that colonial, that history there. Another one that comes to mind for me is Liz Williamson's. Like bringing that exhibition to Tamworth was an amazing way for our textile artists to then respond to that, be inspired and have that essential access to significant works. You do have a number of state and national um, institutions, but having someone like the Australian Design Centre with that focus on craft is a great fit for us. And we might couple them sometimes with something from our own collection so you can bounce off between the two. We normally have a regional pool of about an hour to a two-hour radius, but sometimes with these exhibitions, they can travel up to as far as three hours, say from Port Macquarie on the coast or even Dubbo down south inland. So the benefits for the Australian Design Centre on tour is really important for our region. And it is part of a cultural tourism package as well that we provide to visitors to our city. I think it was particularly groundbreaking for the sector to to produce an exhibition of this calibre and this type, the management of those tours, but the relationships that that first exhibition built with the regional gallery venues, which are so instrumental to the success of the program. One of the things that was really important early on was to understand the needs of the regional venues and what we found was that there was a great willingness and interest and, and, and desire to take these sorts of shows. And, um, you know, we, we realised that the relationships with these venues was going to be a, a pretty important thing. We, we created a, a, a touring exhibitions coordinator role. Prior to that, most organisations across Australia in the small to medium sector had relied on what were previously called the NETS organisations to manage tours. So what would happen is a a, a small to medium kind of sector organisation like Object or like one of the contemporary art spaces would develop an exhibition and propose it to the NETS body in their state and NETS would tour it. We found that to be a really inefficient model. We thought that there was another way of doing it. Again, much, much more cost effective and that enabled Object then as an organisation to have direct relationships with with those venues 
that we're taking, which will allow this sort of feedback loop to kind of evolve and improve the touring product. And to build some expertise in touring into the organisation. C- correct, correct. And, and so creating that touring exhibitions coordinator role was the step change for, for Object from being another gallery that produced shows that other people toured to being an organisation that toured. That was a profound change in terms of the organisation's understanding of itself and its national reach and remit. You know, Sandra Brown, who, who certainly coordinated the tour of, of you know, the first four exhibitions, at least probably six of them, she understood the value of relationships. As, as, as the person who was uh, lucky to work with Sandra, the kind of feedback from the venues about the genuineness of the relationship and the kind of willingness to kind of, you know, move mountains to help their needs. So suddenly, you know, we were preferred content providers and that was a combination of having good shows and great service, old-fashioned customer service, if you like. So thinking about those venues as a kind of client partner and being able to kind of work with them. Completely. And, And they are the pillars and you, Sandra, Steve, others, other, the people who really have blazed that for us as an organisation today and, and what makes ADC on tour such a successful product for us as an organisation today. Yeah, and it really is. So thanks. And, well, you know, <laughs> I think, you know, the, the other thing that was really important about that was you don't just send the show to a venue, you send someone to kind of o- oversee the installation and and to help un- unpack both, you know, metaphorically and, and literally, you know, builds emotional capital that, that is hard to kind of put a, a kind of value on. But in, in retrospect, you look at all the amazing outcomes and networks, I, I don't know what the numbers are up to, but the number of venues that ADC has worked with with its ADC on tour program is phenomenal. It really is, yeah. And, you know, also... It's professional development. It's professional development for the staff within our organisation, for our team, also professional development for the regional gallery staff and almost now to the point where often there are many, many staff around the country now with great expertise. You know, we're often uh, maybe not spending as much time on the ground as we were in the past, depending on the show, that means that there is a, a growing network of expertise around the country. Yeah, I think you're right. So the second in the, in the series was Klaus Moye in 2006, eminent glass artist who sadly passed away in 2016. Klaus was hailed internationally as a founder of modern kiln glass, clearly a leader in his field and an exceptional artist. Can I ask you, Brian, in building that relationship with the artists, the living treasures, you spent a lot of time with them and... I'd love you, because we can't talk to Klaus in this series, I'd love you to to tell us a bit about, um, you know, your first meeting Klaus in his studio and maybe paint a bit of a picture for us of um, the type of environment that Klaus worked in. Sure. So by the time we got round to the Living Treasures show, Klaus had been retired from the ANU for several years and had a um, very well-established home studio down the south coast and he had a series of kind of workshop sheds that were extraordinary environments to be in so you'd have these big storage units filled with sheet 
glass in various colours arranged kind of in a rainbow configuration. You, you walk into the space and you there are clean spaces for cutting and laying out and there are kind of beautifully methodical, Germanic, organised, chromatic selections, vast selections of very expensive material. And, you know, this is, this is someone who at the time was arguably in, in the top handful of glass artists uh, and, and, and remains one of the most kind of reverent figures. So he had... In the world. In the world. Mm. In the world. That's right. And, you know, someone who's visited lots of artist studios, artists at the top of their game, the spaces, you know, feel complete in some way. They know their practice so intimately They've evolved their life around their practice. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, a painter's studio is one thing, but I think a craftsperson's studio, particularly when we're talking about ceramics and glass and wood and, you know, some of those um, disciplines that involve so much equipment and heavy equipment and kilns and all sorts of things, it's almost like a a mini factory-like environment. That's right, that's right. And you need space for that kind of work as well, which you know, the cities don't often don't lend themselves to so much as a, you know, a coast, a place down the coast or in the country. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I mean, you know, part of the um, the crafts movement has, you know, and certainly the way it kind of played out in the 60s, 70s, early 80s, was it was as much a kind of lifestyle movement as it was a creative movement. So then, of course, the series moved from Klaus Moyer to Marion Hosking in 2007, Liz Williamson in 2008, um, and then in 2009, Jeff Mincham, and 2010, Robert Baines. So you left ADC for Adelaide where you continued to run the Jam Factory today. I think you had some involvement from afar in The Next Living Treasure that followed Robert Baines, Nick Mount, to South Australian glass artists. So, you know, now we're moving back to glass in a very different way in, in, to indeed. the Class Moyer exhibition. Can you tell us about Nick? Because I know you know him and his work well. You know, in terms of the uh, glass art movement in Australia, in many ways, Klaus and Nick are the kind of bookends, you know, that, that you've got uh, kiln-formed glass and, and, and its related kind of spin-offs and hot glass, glass blowing and, and glass studio and its offshoots. Nick is from, from that latter camp. You know, within, within the glass fraternity, there are interesting sort of, um, you know, uh, competitive tensions, if you like, but between those two uh, modes of practice um, in, in a, you know, a nice and healthy way. It's not it, but they're, they're, they're very definitely, they're different fields of endeavour. You know, one, one is um, uh, a, a precise and singular activity, the kind of kiln forming and, and fusing kind of stuff. Uh, and the hot glass is a kind of um, theatrical team sport. You can't blow glass on your own. Well, we've all been watching Blown Away the, the, on Netflix, indeed, haven't we? In, so. in, in, <laughs> indeed. It, it's, be, it's become um, bigger than ever. Nick has been a great advocate, a great survivor and an exceptional technician uh, who, who's Influence has been phenomenal, not just in Australia, but globally. You know, so he was a right and proper 
second glass living treasure. Nick is um, a classic larrikin in lots of ways, and he's a um, he loves an underdog, and he Nick is wary and apprehensive of the institutions, and um, is you know a great advocate for the worker and his dedication to constant refinement of his craft you know and we still you know see Nick blow glass every week in our studio and influence and inform and mentor formally and informally generations of others so do you think looking back over 15 years that this import this format is still important today and why oh look completely and, and you know and, and obviously I have a, a prejudicial view but um back to somewhere where we started the audiences love them right and any of us who run venues so so you know a jam factory love to take the living treasures exhibitions because they're great exhibitions that our audiences love you know while ever that's the case it will continue to be an important and valuable program to see a body of work an artist's body of work on such a scale in these exhibitions, I think really helps audiences to understand what goes into that life of practice, much more so than seeing a piece in a group exhibition. That, that's right. And, 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 you know, in almost every other context of encountering these people's work, it is in the kind of representative piece in a state collection or the piece in a group show somewhere or maybe if you're lucky to see some new work in a commercial gallery context but they're very different very different scenarios Mm -hmm. by trying to tell the story of someone's practice or the preoccupations that drive them you can add all these layers whether it's the beautiful films that you guys do these days that accompany each of the shows whether it's the books whether it's some of the stories that will come out through this podcast series, you know, it's those layers that make it feel so worthwhile. I'm very grateful to Jim and to you, Brian, and to all of the people that we've talked about today and all of the artists who have worked with us over this, you know, what will be two decades to produce a series of exhibitions that um, resonate so well with audiences and really tell a fantastic story of Australian craft practice. That was Brian Parks, former Associate Director of the Australian Design Centre, in conversation with me, Lisa Carl. We owe a lot to Brian, Steve Pazell and many others on the ADC team over the years who have contributed to the success of Living Treasures. In recent years, it's been my privilege to continue this work and next year we begin work on what will be the 10th exhibition in the series. This is the final episode of Object Season 1, but we'll be back with a second season next year. I'd like to thank you all for listening and to everyone who's left us a review or a comment on Instagram or Facebook. It means so much to us and the artists that you're listening and responding to what you've heard. Object is a podcast by the Australian Design Centre. The Gadigal people of the Eora Nation are the traditional custodians of this place we now call Sydney where the Australian Design Centre is located and where this podcast was made. We'd like to thank the Australia Council for the Arts for funding support for OBJECT. 
you can follow the Australian Design Centre on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Object is produced by Jane Curtis in collaboration with Lisa Carl and Alex Fiveash. Thank you for listening.